Amen. Glory to God. It's so nice to see everyone in the house of the Lord. Welcome to everyone that's joining us online. I wanted to create a very serene atmosphere because we're opening the book of Genesis. And if you do have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn to chapter number one. And what we're going to do is we're going to explore chapters one and two in the book of Genesis. And the reason why we want to be very careful is these two chapters are the foundation of everything. So if you're making notes, I want you to put that down, even in your, whether you're going to log it up here or on paper or Genesis chapters one and two, that's the foundation of everything. I'll repeat that again. Genesis chapters one and two, foundation of everything. In fact, those are the only chapters in the Bible that are pure and pristine. There isn't a mistake in Genesis chapters one and two. There is no evidence of sin in those chapters. There's no fallenness. Those are the purest words that we have in the Bible. When we enter chapter number three, we see a serpent. We see a mistake on the woman's part, a mistake on the man's part. And then from there, we, we begin to careen out of control all the way to the flood. It is said by scholars, and I believe it to be true, that if you can understand Genesis chapters one and two, you can understand the entire Bible. You can understand the heart, the mind of God, because all of that is cased, it's encased in chapters one and two. Remember this, when chapter three opens and the woman eats of the fruit and the man partakes, remember now we are off script and everything that we're going to read from there on in is an attempt of God to get us where? Back on script. So everything is in recovery mode after chapter number three. Chapters one and two are critical to understand. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at beginnings. And this is the first part. What I'm going to do for three lessons, and by the way, this is our last lesson in the month of June. That's how quickly it goes. We'll break next week. We'll pray on the 29th. And then we'll be back again the first Wednesday in July. But give us enough time to ruminate on this because it's, it's again, the deepest portion of the Bible. We're going to look at beginnings because what we taught was Genesis means just that, origins or beginnings. Another word that you'll see in the King James is generations. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth or the beginnings of the heavens and the earth. This is the genesis of God. This is the genesis of man, the genesis of woman the genesis of the purpose of God, at least as, it, as it's revealed to us. So we're doing beginnings, and that's why I think it's so important. In other words, this is the foundation of everything that God wants us to know. If we understand this, we've got the foundation right. Okay? Let's begin by talking about the author. We'll go through this very, very quickly. Who is the writer? I think a better word would be writer, not author. But we can understand what I'm trying to say here. Who would be the author or the writer of the book of Genesis? Notice this. Nowhere in the book of Genesis does the author identify him or herself. You're never going to find somebody say, I wrote this. Or God told me to write this. It simply says, in the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth and continues all the way to chapter 50. So we're going to have to do some surmising here. We think it's truth, 
But remember this, these areas of understanding God's word are not required to be argued over. Somebody says, Sarah wrote it, say, well, that's good for you. Somebody says, Bill wrote it. It's not required. We're going to do some surmising, and you might agree with it, you might disagree with it. But let's look at this. Let's, let's believe this. It is assumed, notice I use the word assumed, that Moses is the writer of these words. It's assumed. It doesn't say that anywhere in the book itself, but it is assumed. We can make the assumption because we have the benefit of Luke 24, verse 44. And in Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus says, all that was written in the law of Moses, in the prophets and in the Psalms were written concerning me. And so Jesus seems to suggest that this, and the the idea of law of Moses is the idea of the Torah, the five books that we understand in the first section of the Bible. It's assumed to be authored by Moses. Now remember this, Moses is not alive when he's writing these things, correct? Let me say it like this. The things that Moses is writing about, he was not born then. Better said. Right. In fact, 300, that's not even right. 300 years after some point in the book of Genesis, Moses is born. Because the truth of the matter is we don't even know what the time span is in Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2. And I will show you that in just, just a few moments. But we assume it to be Moses. Number two, we believe it to be the first of his five books. And what do we call this? We call this the Torah or the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These five books we ascribe to Moses. In fact, all Jewish scholars will do this. Christian scholars will do this. The church has believed this for centuries. These first five books were authored by Moses. One more thing. It is assumed again that part of the revelation comes when Moses encounters God on Mount Sinai. So it is, it's assumed that this is part of what God revealed to him. What God did in the beginning. He was not there. He was not there when God called Abraham. He was not there when Noah had to construct the ark. He was not there when Jacob and Esau were wrestling in the womb. So God must have revealed this to him. Second Timothy 3.16, God gave this to him by way of inspiration. So Genesis is God breathed, God telling him. So more than just thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, God reveals to him the beginnings at Mount Sinai. It's a reasonable assumption. Would you not agree? That God shows him these things. Now think about this. This is very powerful. You have to also then come to the conclusion that either he wrote it down on some form of writing instrument. So whether he wrote it, it's called cuneiform. He wrote it on something, whether it's a a stone of some kind, or he wrote it on parchment of some kind, or watch this, or he kept it in his and spoke it orally to those who would listen. So that's something to think about. Now, that may sound strange, but in Jewish culture, oral tradition is very powerful. The idea that you can remember a thing and then communicate it to David, and David communicates it to Robert, and Robert communicates it over here, and it continues. It's the idea of oral tradition. And most good Jewish scholars will tell you that much of the information we have in the Old Testament, especially the books of Moses, came down to us through oral traditions until the scribes began to write it down. 
So this is powerful because when you get to books like Deuteronomy, you're going to see God say, all that Moses is telling you, tell it to your children. When you rise up, remember that? When you lay down, when you walk by the, continue to communicate or repeat it. Thank you. Repetition. That's very good. That's what the word Mishnah means, to repeat something, to repeat it, to repeat it. And that's a powerful way of instruction. All right, so, but it's assumed that this is what God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. Here is something else that we know for a fact. We can say now that God is the actual, the actual author. And Moses then becomes what is called the amanuensis. The word amanuensis simply means the scribe or the secretary. So we can say this because it's the word of God. The ultimate author of scripture is God. The human agent is the one taking down the notes. So it's as if God is dictating. He says, Moses, come into my office, take a seat. Moses becomes the secretary and God says, in the beginning, and Moses, and he says, type. And Moses begins to write down what God is saying to him. This principle follows every scroll in the word of God. That every scroll, every book is actually God authored and humanly written. Okay? That's all I want to say about authorship. I think it's pretty straightforward. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at several beginnings that come out in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Several beginnings. And then I'm going to show you uh, a few weeks from now, beginnings that you see in chapter 3, chapter 6, all the way. All these beginnings that you're going to see. Again, remember, the book is called Genesis Beginnings. Its title is found in chapter 1, verse 1. What does that say? In the, that's Genesis, Bereshit, in beginnings, God did this. This is the first beginning that we want to look at. Genesis introduces us to God. Now, be careful here because we are not suggesting that God began in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What we're suggesting is called a relative beginning. We're suggesting that God reveals himself to us for the first time in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He does not start there, but he reveals himself to us there. It's called a relative beginning. Why is it called a relative beginning? Because God has no beginning and he has no It's a relative beginning. It's God taking the initiative to reveal himself to us. Watch this. Any knowledge we have of God, he initiates the revelation. Anything we know about him, it is God that takes the initiative to reveal that to us. And we're supposed to catch the revelation, understand the revelation. Can I make another statement? What the Bible reveals to us is not all that God is. It's all that we need to know for our journey to him. Do you follow that? God is more than the Bible. He is bigger than the Bible. He cannot cannot be contained in 66 scrolls. The heavens of the heavens cannot contain him. Much more 66 scrolls. The Bible is what you and I need to get us to him. And when we encounter him and meet him in the eternal ages, we'll see exactly, well, watch this. We'll spend all eternity getting to know who he is. Here's the first thing. God reveals himself to us as Elohim. 
In the beginning, this is the Hebrew word for God, in the beginning Elohim created. This is a very significant word because, number one, it is not a name, it is a title for God. It is no different than the word, if I was a Muslim, it's no different than the word Allah. It's no different than the Spanish word Dios. It's no different than the Latin word Dea. It just means God. But the uniqueness of this word is, listen carefully, it is a plural word. Are you okay with that? So Elohim is actually a plural word. And later on in the Bible, you're going to see that you can take off the O-H-I-M and you can actually call God El. Is that right? God is El Shaddai. God is El Roi. God. Allah. You okay with that? So Elohim is not his name. It is a title of deity, God. And we don't know anything more. We're going to be fair to it. We're not going to jump to the New, New Testament and start applying things. What we do know is that this word is a plural word. That's all we're going to say. And I want you to be patient with that. Because the, the tendency of Christians is to say, but what about this? And didn't the Bible say this? And remember, all we are is we're at the beginning. That's all we are. That's how to be fair with the scriptures. Don't run someplace because you're nervous. Because God is not nervous. He reveals himself to us as Elohim. Number two. He reveals himself to us as a universal creator. So he is the one that's created everything. And now this is what we call the visible creation. Genesis chapter 1 does not talk to us about invisible creation. So we don't know anything about angels being created. We don't know anything about spirits. We don't know anything about Satan. We don't know anything about any problems in eternity. All we know is that God is the universal creator of all that we can see. That's being fair to the text. All that the eye can see, he is the one that has created it. There are two things we can do here right now. We can say that it did not come through evolution if we're fair with the text. And we could also say that it, it appears as if creation has an intelligent designer behind it. Because God is the one who has created it. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Another thing we can say is that if he has created these things, he must also be the owner of them. Fair? And the Bible will then develop those themes as we go along. He's a universal creator. Number three, he's also revealed himself as some kind of a moving spirit. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So this universal creator reveals himself to us as a moving spirit. So we can conclude, we don't have to go anywhere, that the creator is spirit. Those are fair assessments that we're making, and we're not jumping anywhere to come to that. This plural God, who's created all things, is a moving spirit. That's all we know thus far, and that's good. Number four, 
He's also revealed himself to us as we go a little further as a speaking spirit. Now he's building on the revelation. He's a moving spirit that has the ability to speak. And God said, let there be. So God has the ability to speak. So he is a speaking spirit. So watch, God then has a word. <laughs> and his word, according to Genesis, has the ability to bring things into existence. So now we're being fair with the text. And God said, let there be light. And there was. So things seem to respond creatively to his word. We're fair, right? We're being fair with the text. He can call things that don't exist into existence by his word. Right? That's a fair assessment. Whatever doesn't exist, he can call it into existence. And how does he do that? By speaking to it. We could also conclude that the word that he speaks is powerful. That's a reasonable conclusion because if you can call light into being and light responds to your word, your word must then have power. Okay. One more thing I'll give you. Everything that he speaks to responds to his word. Nothing, listen to this, nothing resists his word. So when he says, let this happen, whatever he's speaking to, that thing does not say, not today. Let be, and there was. That's called efficacy. His word is efficacious. Things respond to it as he speaks it. He's also revealed as, we're going to call him this, creator father. As we go along, he's going to bring people into existence. And we're going to give him some level of fatherhood because he's going to create man and woman or male and female in his own image. We're going to apply to him some level of fatherhood with that creation. So the idea of fatherhood begins here. Adam then would be his son by virtue of creation. That's his created son. Eve would be his created daughter. So he then operates in the role to some degree as father over them creator father i'm not going too fast am i okay this is another good one he's revealed as a giver of gifts so throughout chapter one you're going to see him begin to give things so he's going to give them meat every tree have i given to you for food He's going to give to the man the breath of life. When the man is lonely, he's going to gift him with a woman. So he's presented as this God, creator, spirit who speaks, who moves, but also gives gifts to his creation. And here's something important. Every gift that he gives appears to be good. So there isn't a gift that he gives that is negative to the receiver. So the food is good for them. It, whatever was good for food, he gave it to them. Obviously, the breath is good for him. He becomes a living soul. The woman, because it was not good for the man to be alone. So the woman must be 
good for him. And likewise, he must be good for, for her. Okay? You're going to see this idea on the days of creation that when God looks at things, he then identifies it as being good. When God saw the distance between the light, the separation, he said it was good. Evening, morning was the first day. And when he finishes his creation, what does he say? He sits back like a, a real good creator and he says, it was very good. And thus God rested on the seventh day. That's important. All right. Let's keep going a little bit. Let me go one back, one back. He's also revealed, now we're in chapter 2, as a lawgiver. So this God, Elohim, gives laws or commandments. He only gives one in Genesis chapter 2. Of every tree thou shalt eat, but of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, thou shalt not eat of that. So he's giving laws. He gives commandments in Genesis chapter 2. He is a law giver. The word commandment there is mitzvah. He gives mitzvah. He gives us laws. And his laws must be obeyed. And if his laws are not obeyed, there are going to be repercussions. In the day that you eat, eating is breaking law, isn't it? Eating is not fulfilling appetite for God. Eating is breaking law. Dying, you shall surely die. So there are consequences for breaking laws. And you can see that in Genesis chapter, chapters 1 and 2. He's a lawgiver. This is just a side note because we're almost finished in this section. In chapter 2, verse 4, he introduces himself not only just as God, Elohim, but he inserts this title or this name for himself, rather. He calls himself Lord, the Lord God. And that's the first time you're going to see this word. The word is, I'm going to actually show you two distinctions. I'm going to go with the right one first. The Hebrew word is Adonai. And now separate from Elohim, Adonai appears to be some kind of name that's given to him. But he doesn't explain it, just the Lord God, and that's it. We have come to refer to Adonai as Yahweh. You've heard that word before. The reason why I wrote it like that is because in Hebrew there are no vowels, only vowel sounds. But if you wanted to put your Y-A, W-E-H, you could put your vowel sounds in there. The Hebrews wouldn't put vowels, there are no vowels there, they would actually just Yahweh. But here's the interesting thing. As time went on, the Jewish people did not refer to him as Yahweh. They said that name was too great to be spoken. And the reason why they did that was based on Exodus 20, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord God. They believed that if you said it too often, you run the risk of actually taking it in vain. So they said this name could not be uttered. It's called the Tetragrammaton, the four letters. They never uttered it. They referred to God as Adonai. Both of those words mean the same thing, Lord. We've come to develop another term, Jehovah, which is an English transliteration of the word Adonai or Yahweh. He introduces himself as Lord with no explanation. I think I'm going to give you what I believe. Just heard something. When God says that he's Lord, he doesn't have to explain himself. 
I want you to think about that. When he says that he's Lord, he's expecting someone to say, I bow. (laughs) He doesn't have to convince us that he's Lord. He expects us to respond to his Lordship. He's not in a debate with us over his Lordship until we come to consensus and say, yes, you are Lord. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is to the glory of God. So maybe the writer, by not explaining it, is teaching you something already. That there are things that God doesn't have to explain to us. You know how our children are today? Most of us are a little older. We grew up generations before this current generation. And whether right or wrong, um, some of the things our parents would tell us, we couldn't say, tell me why. Do you know what I mean? Well, today, when you tell your child something, what do they say to you? Why? And what do you feel like doing? You don't, though, but, but we grew up in a time where you couldn't say, you just basically said, if that's what you're saying, you want us to clean the house, you don't have to explain it to us. There's a little bit of God in that, in that there's some things that God does not have to explain to us. Some things you have to follow on to know. In other words, some things, because of his lordship, you have to believe, and as you walk in that direction, He reveals to you what he was trying to convince you of. All right? So let's keep going now. The second thing that uh, is introduced to us as a beginning is the idea of creation. We see the beginning of the visible creation. And this subject here is huge. It's, it's, it's academically challenged. It's been the, 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 the reason why there's a rift between people who are believers and non-believers. Is it evolution? Is it creation? This has been an argument for centuries. The beginning of creation. The Bible takes the time to explain where all of this came from. This that we're looking at. Now watch this. The Bible is not the only book in the ancient world that tried to explain creation. The Babylonians tried to explain it. The Egyptians tried to explain it. The Bible is one of many books trying to explain creation. If you do all these ancient creation stories, you will see that the Bible is probably one of the only books that says a God took the time to create. Wasn't the fight among the gods and creation is not the result of the blood of one God killing another God. A personal God took the time to speak these things into being. So now, let's go one step further. Creation. This is an argument now. Now I'm going to give you the arguments inside the church. There are people that believe, because creation, according to Genesis 1, took place in how many days? Six days, and then the seventh day God rested. Here's one position that some people have. And you you may know some of these. There are Christians that believe that Genesis chapter 1, God is creating the world in seven literal 24-hour periods. So whatever that is, 6 a.m. in the morning, God starts, and then 6 in the, it's done day one. This is called the literal day theory. Now don't laugh. This is one of the reasons why Christians will then tell you that the earth is 4,000 years old. Because they're going to go 2,000 years in the Old Testament, 2,000 in the New Testament from the church, the earth is. Then a secular scholar is going to say, but we have fossils here that we have looked at, and it looks like this is billions of years that things have been around. This comes out of the literal 24-hour theory. The evening and the morning were the 
first day. I want you to think a little deeper. This is not my position, but it's the position of many. Again, this is not a point of contention. Many people believe this. When I think of the evening and the morning, I think of a starting point and an ending point. That's what I think of. I don't think of the sun rising and the sun setting because the sun does not exist until day four. So it's hard to get sunrise and sunset on day one when the sun is not brought out day four. Perhaps in the mind of God, he's teaching us something about the creation, that everything has a starting point, everything has a ending point. And until you finish something, you should move on to the next thing. Maybe. But that's just up for us to talk about afterwards when this is over. There's a second view that people have of the creation, that these are actually seven geological ages that we're seeing. Day one is an age. It's not a day, it's an age. And so this could be billions and billions and billions of years. Day one. Day two is another geological age. This is called the day-age theory. Each of those single days represent an age. Maybe there's truth in this because one day with God is as a thousand years and a thousand years with God is as one day. Maybe there's truth in this. Maybe God is creating things over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Just know that there are Christians that believe that. And again, this would be an attempt to explain why there are fossils and dinosaurs and the earth and things of that nature. Here's another one that's quite interesting. Pentecostals believe this one, even if they don't tell you, they do. Pentecostals believe in what's called a recreation theory. It's also called the gap theory. And what they believe, primarily, it's, it's actually because it's the origins of a guy named Phineas Dakes. What they believe is Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is actually a picture of a first creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But verse number 2 says, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. What they would teach you is that between chapter 1 verse 1 and verse number 2, something cataclysmic happened. Something happened that plunged the world into darkness. Something happened that caused God to flood the earth. And it's in that space that these people would put the fall of Satan. You see that? And so what happens is, and there's a whole theory that goes along with that, that there was a, a race of people that existed before Adam on the earth. It's a lot to go with, with very few scripture, but it's a lot. And as a result of Satan coming down and messing with these people, God judges the earth, plunges into darkness, floods the whole world. Now chapter 1 verse 2 is God doing what? Recreating. So watch this. It's a very skillful analysis of the scriptures. The dry land comes from where? Under the waters. And their thought is if it was under the water, it was there all the time. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing because God doesn't create water in Genesis. It's just there. There's no scripture that says, let there be water. It's just there. There's no scripture that says, let there be darkness. It's just there. So this is called the gap theory. There's a gap between verse 1 and verse number 2. 
And that's in the mysterious ages when Satan falls to the ground and now God is beginning to recreate the world, pulling things back into existence. Fourth one, and this is the last one. There are those who believe that creation is a seven-day framework, that the Spirit of God is not teaching us Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but God is teaching us a framework. We're safer in this dimension. This is where I sit down, by the way, and I'm going to be very candid with you. You know the insight, full transparency. This is where I sit. <laughs> but well, watch this. It's dangerous for you to go to Genesis chapter 1 and say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, because those, that concept did not exist. Do you understand that? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday comes out of a Julian calendar. Hundreds, thousands years later, that is the notion of that. It seems to me that if you read the scriptures carefully, the seven-day framework suggests this, that creation is actually God showing you something about how he works. And so what you can find in Genesis chapters 1 to, let's say, 4, is God doing something called forming the creation. So whether he's forming the earth and shaping this and forming the dry land and shaping this, that's all he spends. He spends time forming, separating this from this. And then the other three days, because he's formed things, he must now spend time filling up those things. If you read it carefully, you will see that he will separate waters but put nothing in them until later. He will separate dry land, put nothing on it till later. And so what he does is he forms things and then he fills what he forms. This is powerful because he will go in this order. If he separated the sky from the waters on day four, he's going to put stars up there and fish down there. You see that? If he separates the dry land on a particular day, on the corresponding day, he's going to put land animals on it and he's going to put men on it. He's a God that forms things. And he's a God that fills things. And once he has filled what he's formed, it's done. Now, this is one of the most powerful themes of the Bible that I think exists, because that's how God will work throughout all of Scripture. He will tell Moses, this is the form of the tabernacle. Make sure you form it first, and then make sure you put all these things in it. And when Moses has formed the tabernacle, God will do what? Fill it with his glory. Tell Solomon the same thing. This is the temple. You form it, shape it, and once you have formed and shaped it, then you, I will fill it with my, my glory. I think this is closest to the theology of creation. The other ones, I think, tread too much on a lot of assumptions, and they also import a lot of current thinking into the text. So that's why we have God resting on a Saturday. I don't have God resting on a Saturday. I have God actually stepping back and saying, I'm finished. I don't have anything more to do with this. And setting it in motion. Creation and the rest of God, in my thinking, it's the rest of completion, not the rest of exhaustion. I want you to think about that. It is the rest of completion. It means that things are finished. There's nothing else that I need to do to this. It's done. It's not I'm tired. I need to rest. And then Sunday, I'm going to go back to it. 
And that's the mindset that we can sometimes bring to the text, that we've got God sleeping and then coming back to work the following day. So that's how creation plays itself out. But let's go a little further. Creation is, is seen. Now, this is not a guess. It's seen as the expression of God's will. This is what he desires. And so the Latins would say creation comes by fiat, F-I-A-T. God wills it into being. Fiat means let be. That's God imposing his will. Let be. And there was. Creation then is the expression of God's will. He wills the world to look the way it looks. He wills Adam into creation. It's the expression of his will. Number two, it's the expression of his word. We talked about that before. Creation is the expression of his word. He spoke something into being. So creation now is spoken. It's the product of his word. His word creates and brings things into existence. So if you want to see something of his word, listen to this, you can see it in creation. So now I'm going to just jump ahead a bit. I'm going to cheat just a little bit. Now I can understand why the writers would say that the creation declares the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. You can see something of God's word in creation. And this, this is powerful. You can see something of God's order in creation. You can see something of God's will in creation. How, even though it's fallen and sometimes messed up, you can see some vestige of God's will and God's word in creation. I'll jump one step further again, just cheating a little bit. Scholars will then teach you that you can come to know God by paying attention to creation. That's called general revelation. And then, of course, you can come to know God personally by paying attention to Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus? Is he not the word made flesh? Okay. Creation is also an expression of God's gift. It's what he has given to us. And here, this is very important. He gives them the creation. After he makes it, he gives it to them. They, I'm speaking about the man and the woman, they are not owners of it. They have been given it as a gift. So now, watch, watch closely, listen to this. The church should really have a theology of taking care of creation. I jumped ahead a little, I'm cheating a little bit, but you can see why it's inconceivable that an unbeliever would be teaching us about stewardship over creation when it was God's gift to his son and his daughter. You see how we can sort of go off kilter where we pay no attention to the creation that was given to us as a gift and then unbelievers come up and start talking about green this and recycle this and do this and do that and we would even look at that and say, that's not spiritual. But Genesis says God gave it to them. He gave them dominion. We're going to do that in just a minute. Over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, the beasts of the field, over all that he had created, he gave it to them as a gift. That's powerful. Gave it to them as a gift. I would say this, and you think about it for a moment. How we treat the creation 
is a direct reflection of what we think of the gift giver. From this point on, how we treat the creation. We'll see this in just a minute. Creation is also an expression of God's goodness, which we said before. When God looked at it, he said it was very good. And that idea of good, it comes from a Hebrew word, tov, T-O-V, and that means it's good to accomplish his purpose. That's what makes it good. Whatever he has in mind, that which he has created is going to accomplish his purpose. He set it here for something. He created it for something. He made it for something. It's like asking the inventor, you you made the car for nothing? Well, he made the car for something. So the car is good when it, it accomplishes the purpose of the maker. The microwave is good when it accomplishes the purpose of the inventor of it. So is creation. Creation has a purpose. It's been designed to accomplish something. I'm going to show you one more thing that I think is important that the Bible will develop. Creation also has a mind of its own. Has a mind of its own. Meaning that the mind of the steward, which is Adam and, and, and the woman, should be in line with the mind of creation. Creation knows its purpose. I'm just, I'm cheating a little bit. Creation knows why it exists. When the man sins and the woman sins, they lose sight of their purpose. Creation has never forgotten why it was created. Further on in the New Testament, when we get there, ultimately you're going to see creation doing what? Groaning and travailing, waiting to be liberated from the mess that we got it into. Creation knows its purpose. It's God's goodness that we can see. A beginning, uh, final beginning that we'll do is the beginning of human being. I'm going to use the term mankind. I think sometimes we throw words out because of political correct, correctness. I'm going to use this word because the word is right. The word mankind encompasses the genders, male and female. It actually shows us to be a species, mankind. We're in a class. By the way, um, you may have seen this today, that the, the police chief was apologizing to people of color, indigenous people and all that. And of course, you know, uh, our people have said, we, we're not accepting your apology. Would have thought that we would have said, you know, we don't agree with everything, but let's work together. Thank you for the apology and let's see how we can use some, get some measured results along the way. Um, but he was arguing that this is race-based data. And one of the things I've tried to teach the body is that there is no such thing as race in the Bible. You have to believe me when I say this. Race is a social construct. It does not exist in the Bible. There is no such thing. Talk to the camera. There's no such thing as the black race or the white race or the eight. There's no such thing because a race is a kind. It's a species. It's a genus. It's a class. There's only one species. Human beings. (laughs) You're not a different species. Black person is not a different species. A white person is not a... We have pigmentational differences. We have ethnic differences. We have cultural differences. But we don't have, watch, species differences. A different species would be a fish. (laughs) A bird. And so we've got to, that word does not belong in our vocabulary. I'm of the black race. No, we're of the human genus, family. 
So when God looks at us, he says, I have made you of one blood, Acts 17, to dwell on the face of the earth. And we're buying into this race stuff all the time. And I think social constructs that have come from dark places to further separate us. Mankind is introduced in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26. It is God that initiates their creation. He says, let us. Don't struggle. Remember I said Elohim is a plural word. And we'll explain it as we go along. I hope you can wait long enough. But he says, let us make man in our image after our and let them have so he is the one that initiates the creation and gives the gifts. He is the one that creates them. According to Genesis, they watch. They did not crawl out of the water. You with me? He created them. Male and female created he them. And he blessed him. He blessed them. That's important. She is as blessed as he is. She is as dominion bearing as he is. And he gave them dominion. It's the devil that's inverted it and made him over her. <laughs> when God made them, he made them like this. In fact, we will see later on in chapter 2 that he made them in one body and to separate them, he pulled one out of the other. <laughs> that's powerful. Kind of like the church. In him, out comes the church. Same idea. So it is God that creates. Now watch. He creates mankind as his image. Do not play with this. In his mind, this that he's created is his reflection or his representation. It's literally a statue of himself in the visible. Because we've discovered in chapter 1 that this God, Elohim, is a spirit, cannot be seen. So if you're going to see him, how do you see him? Look at these two. <laughs> and these two are a reflection of him. Now this is not a strange concept. Watch this. This is actually a Mesopotamian concept that means the gods... When they want to execute dominion over a territory, they will put a statue of themselves in that territory. And when you see that statue, you realize that this territory belongs to this God. So Nebuchadnezzar does what? He builds a statue of himself and puts it in the plain of Dura. It's the same idea. This is God. These are God's statues. They look like him. They reflect him. They represent him. Anyone that doesn't like God, that cannot fight God, will opt to fight his statues. If you want to get God out of the world, you get the statue out of the world. Or you mess with the statue to some degree. Man is God's image. The Latins call this the imago, I-M-A-G-O. Dea, D-E-I, the image of God. If you want to see God, look at what he has created. Now, don't struggle with that because, again, the church struggles with that. Jesus never struggled. You remember this conversation? Watch. Man is God's image. Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father that it would suffice us or satisfy us. What does Jesus say? If you have seen me, see. 
understands image. Understands image. Image is a very high calling that I think in many occasions church people tend to live below it by choice because they're almost taught it's too high to say that you are the reflection of God. I'm not saying that. The Bible said that. I'm trying to live up to the standard of the scriptures. So are you. And he will help us to get there. Beloved, now are we the? Doth not yet appear, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Secondarily, mankind in Genesis is revealed as male and female. Now we get the introduction of gender. So there's some sort of distinction between the male and female. Ish and Isha. There's some distinction between them. The distinction is not image now. The distinction is gender. So now we're going to have to discover as we go along, why, why is there a gender distinction? What is it about her that is not about him? And what is it about him that's not about her as it relates to gender? So the distinction is not image. The distinction is not dominion. The distinction is not equality. The distinction is gender. Male and female created he them. So watch this. Mankind is the composite of male and female. You need both of those to make up mankind. If you don't have a female, you don't have mankind. If you don't have a male, you don't have mankind. You need both of those working together. You need a man and a woman to make humanity. <laughs> we can run all day with that. You need Christ to be a man. You need the church to be a woman. Here's another, another thing we see about them. They're, they've got gender distinction. They've got equality. But they also, mankind seems to be this composite. By the way, gender means that they are bipartite. Humanity is bipartite. Two genders. Oh, yes, that's good, isn't it? So if I want to destroy humanity, let them fight among themselves gender wars. <laughs> Simple way to destroy them. Let them have gender wars. Let me let women fall in love with women. Let me let men fall in love with men to destroy their humanity. Here's another composite. They seem to be, in their uniqueness, some composite of body, spirit, and soul. This is Genesis 2-7 when God gives us the details of the creation of the man, or the forming of the man. He forms his body from the dust of the ground. You, you're going to have to deal with that. I can't tell you what to do with that. You're going to have to decide whether or not God scooped up some dust and started shaping it. You've got to decide that. If you, that's okay if you want to believe that. Or you have to decide that is anthropological or anthropomorphic conversation where God is describing himself as a potter that he's not really scooping up dust, but he's describing it as though he is, you've got to deal with that. If, if you say God literally scooped up dust and formed it, he'll, he'll be okay with that. Did you know that? He will be okay with that because that's your understanding of how intimate the creation is. If you say God doesn't have hands, he spoke that, he'll be okay with that. He's not going to fight you over that because you weren't there. That's why you see Christians fighting over these things. They're not worthy to be fought with. What we do know is that he formed. How? We don't know. 
So we can say he was the potter. And we can say all of that. You can say he spoke it. We don't know. But what we do know is he formed the body from the dust of the ground. And because he's a God that feels what he forms. (laughs) He told us that. Anything he forms, what's the next thing? He's going to fill it with something. And so he forms this body, and then he has this body standing there, and he blows into the body the breath, watch this, the breath of lives. The Bible says in the English, breath of life, but in the Hebrew, the word life is plural. Haya, the breath of lives. Number one, it means that all life is in Adam. All life is in him. And that means all life has come out of God, entered into him, and will continue through him. So he is the head of all life on the planet. Do you see what the devil knows about him? If you hit him, you affect all life that's in him. If he sins all life, he is pregnant with all life. Did you get that? That means you were in him. I was in him. He said, I don't believe that. Well, she was certainly in him. (laughs) Because when God needed to make her, what did he do? Put him to sleep and pulled her out of him. (laughs) That's what the devil knows. All life is in him. The real argument, we haven't got there yet in Genesis 4, is the devil is not after the woman. All life will come through her, but all life comes to her from him. So when she eats the fruit, nothing seems to happen. When he eats, their eyes. And for there, because of Adam, sin passes unto every man. So he is body, he's soul, sorry, he's spirit. But when that breath hits him, he becomes living soul. He becomes a tripartite being. She's also the same. Have a body, they've got a spirit, they've got a soul. Genesis 2 and 7 will teach you that. I always like to jump ahead a little bit and tell you that he then becomes God's first tabernacle. He's God's first tabernacle. He's got an outer court, inner court, a holy of holies. And God is living in him. And God dwells in him. He becomes the first incarnation of God in the planet. The word became flesh in Adam dwelt among us. There are scholars, we only have a few minutes, that actually teach that this may sound far-fetched to you, that Adam was actually, see like the lights in the ceiling? He was actually glowing. She was actually glowing. That they didn't have, listen to this, they didn't have clothes on themselves. He didn't put a suit on him, didn't put a t-shirt on him, didn't put jeans on him. God actually watched crowned him with glory and with honor. I hope you know that. It was glowing. When he sinned, that fell off. And what did he realize? That he was, but wasn't he always naked? No, he was clothed with the glory of God. If you know your Bible well, you will know that that's the first time that God stamps Ichabod On someone, the glory has gone. It's left him. The glory has left him. He is naked. 
And now he needs something to cover him. And God takes the initiative, puts something on him, coats of skin and covers him because the glory is gone. That theme, by the way, is developed in scripture that anyone that's close to God, there's a light that comes off of them. So when Moses goes up to the mountain, spends time with God, he comes down. Bible said his face was shining, that they had to put a veil over him to cover him so that he could speak with them. But this is not new. Remember, Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they went to the mountain, the Bible said he just what? He showed them what he was really covered with. And he began to shine like the sun in its full strength. That's something that I think we should understand when we begin to ask God, let the glory that was on him come back to us. The glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former we're also going to learn just a few more things that creation or mankind, God makes them now stewards. So what he's created, he says, I want you to watch, manage it for me. I'm going to put it in your hands. I'm going to trust you with it. And whatever my purpose is for it, I'm going to give all of that to you. And you make sure that what I created it for, it carries out that purpose, including yourselves. You are stewards. This is the greatest word in the Bible for believers. Forget all the titles, pastor, prophet, apostle. This is what God's called us to be, stewards. Most of Jesus' parables were about stewards, good ones and not so good ones. Stewardship. Can I tell you what's also happened? Secular people come in and take from us and then begin to steward things that we have no concern for. They are creation stewards. You can't eat everything in creation and be a steward. You can't consume everything like society wants us to be consumers. Consumers, you've got to be a manager over things. In other words, you've got to want to take care of what belongs to God. So they are stewards. The garden is the first evidence of that in chapter 2. Whose garden is it? God's garden. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had made and told him to dress the garden and keep the garden. And the woman joins him in the garden as well. They're stewards. I want you to know that God expects you to be a steward. Whatever he's called you to be, he wants you to be a manager over that. Whatever the gift is that's inside of us, he says, I want you to steward that. Who then is that faithful steward that the Lord, when he comes, he will find such a steward giving meat to those in his house? That's what God is looking for. But the steward that knew, not, knew his master's will and did it not shall be whoosh, whoosh, many stripes. It's about stewardship, isn't it? From the beginning, it always has been about stewardship, management. They're also dominion bearers. That's taking stewardship to another level now where what you're saying to God is the same power that you walk in, I'm going to walk in that power as I'm managing your stuff. That's dominion. So I'm not going to let anything mess your stuff up. I'm not going to let anyone come in and mess up your stuff. I'm going to walk in that same dominion, that power that you use to create everything and speak everything into being. I too am going to walk in that power to protect your stuff. That's dominion. 
I refuse to let outside agents mess up your creation. Say amen to that. That's the assignment of the church. (laughs) I refuse to let the devil come in and just run roughshod over everything, including myself, as if I don't have dominion or power or authority. So they, the man and the woman, that's why they must work together because dominion is shared. He is not the only one with dominion. They share it together in the same way that Christ and his church shares dominion. Matthew 28, 18, you need to write that in your book. Matthew 28, 18, all power has been given unto me, Jesus says, both in heaven and in earth. Now watch, go make disciples out of all nations. We're sharing in that same authority from Genesis. She has authority. He has authority. Equal amounts of authority share dominion. The church has done, I think, what I would say, a miserable job of actually teaching the equality that existed in Genesis. Even to this very day, you will see that in most cases, we'll get to this one, the church is very man, and I mean male-centered, in the wrong way. So after a while, people then begin to look at the church as just being completely patriarchal. Patriarchal. And if you talk to some men, they struggle. Some men will not sit under a female leader. And what they're really sending is a message, I don't think a woman can lead me. <laughs> All that, well, she can sure push out the baby, <laughs> which you and I know that we... I was there one time, I said, better you than me. <laughs> but that, that comes from not understanding shared dominion. We'll get to there when we get there. Last thing is, they're worshiping stewards. Genesis seems to suggest that God has made them worshiping stewards. Dressing the garden is the act of worshiping. That service, so they're going to worship the God who's given them the garden, the God who's given them the breath of life, the God who's given them their stewardship, they're going to respond to him as part of their stewardship by worship. And so this is introduced in Genesis chapter 2. Humankind, worshiping stewards, and I think last one, they're going to protect the creation. Keep the garden. I'll give you a quick lesson that I think is in Genesis chapter 2. In chapter 1, verse 26, 27, 28, God gives them dominion over the whole world, doesn't he? Over the fish of the sea, fowl of the air, beast of the field. Those are all the zones, water, land, air. You have dominion over the whole thing. But in chapter number 2, he does not send them out there over the whole thing. He puts them where? In a garden. And he says to them, watch the principle. I need you to dress the garden and keep the garden. Here is the principle. I'm cheating now. I'm in the New Testament. If they can be faithful over small things, he can then release them to be rulers over. That's a principle for our lives. If God can trust me with this, he can trust me with the whole thing. So he doesn't throw them out. And you do that with your children, don't you? Even the government does that. They, they give your child uh, uh, a permit to, to drive with somebody beside them. And ultimately, when they can go through that process, they can then drive by themselves, all that. 
We do that all the time. God is the first one to do that. This is also shown in the tithe. Again, I'm going to show you something else. There are people that ask God, give me millions of dollars. But the hundred dollars that he gives us, can't trust us with it. So he says, the reason why I won't give you that is because I already know that that is going to actually further destroy you as it relates to me. So if I give you $100, I'm actually proving you whether or not I can trust you with $100. I like this statement. People say, well, I would tithe if God gave me thousands of dollars. But God gives them $100, they don't tithe. You know what happened if God gave you a million dollars? You'd leave the church. <laughs> Forget about tithing. You'd be in Tahiti somewhere. Forget God. That's the principle. He that is faithful over that which is least can be made ruler over that which is much and they don't watch this they don't go as far as creation because they drop the ball in the garden isn't that something we never get to see adam and the woman in charge of the world expressing god's heart for creation we see them fumble in a garden and then god kicks them out of the garden out into the world now to plow the field and toil and labor that's mankind, male and female. And I think with that, we're through. Let's review what we did tonight. We were introduced to God. We were introduced to creation. And we were introduced to humanity. That's what God wants us to know in chapters 1 and 2. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know His world. And He wants us to know each other, including ourselves. That's really what he wants to tell us from top to bottom. I need you to know me. I need you to know what I've created. And I need you to know who I've created. And then we can take it from there. And sadly, sadly, guess what happens? We don't get to see this thing in operation. Hear me, everyone. Joel, could you play something softly? Hear me, everyone. Then we'll take some questions if you've got them. Listen to this that's coming to me. The devil never wants us to see what it would look like if God really had free course in our lives. He doesn't want us to see what it would look like in our families if God really had lordship over our homes. He doesn't want us to see what it would look like in the body if the church really allowed God to be, watch Elohim, Adonai, all of these things. He doesn't want us to see what the world could look like if God was really in control through us. So what he does, it's called a preemptive act. Before you can get there, he's going to try to throw something in your way to stop that which God had determined. Think with me for a moment. Just think with me. What would we be reading if the woman said, no, sir, we will not eat of that fruit? Honey, <laughs> Could you come over here for a minute? There's a, there's a snake talking to me. Could you come and drive him out with me? It may sound funny, but what would the world look like if they had resisted the enemy and he had fleed from them? What would God have done? What would be the next move? Listen to this. What kind of world would their children have been born into? That's what I think the devil does not want. The body. That's why sometimes you see inside the body, you see all this bickering and man against woman, pastor against. 
You know the only reason why that happens? The devil does not want you to see what this world could look like if God had his way in our lives. Doesn't want you to see what dominion really looks like, what a good earth looks like under your stewardship. Doesn't want you to know that if you step out in the power of God, you can begin to heal all those breaches and those broken places because God has given you the same authority and that people can look at you and say, I see Jesus in you. I see Christ when you talk. I hear him when you move around us. I see him. So he's always trying to interrupt and what the body of Christ does not do, it does not recognize the deception of his interruptions. We make excuses for why this is, you know, rather than saying that is an interruption. So perhaps that's why the Bible says, watch, resist the devil. Resist him and he will flee from us. When you see something that doesn't line up with what we just taught tonight, it doesn't line up with that glory covering that God put on us. It doesn't line up with that dominion. It doesn't line up with a good earth and a good church. Resist that. Don't give fuel to it. Can I teach for a moment? Don't lend an ear to it. Don't perpetuate it by continuing another conversation. Don't let it fructify. That means to bear fruit among us. Don't let it go down into the soils of this ministry, your life, or anything else. See, that is a get. Get thee be. Eve should have said, Get thee out of the garden, Satan. And that's what I think God wants us to know in the beginning. All of Jesus' ministry was to capture, recover Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That's why he gave his life. That's why he bled and died. That's why when he died on that cross, God put him to sleep. You know that, right? They came to break his legs. And there's powerful truths in that. They were going to break his legs to kill him. If they had broken his legs, they would have defiled the Passover lamb. Because none of its bones were to be broken. When they got to him, he was already. In other words, God put him to sleep. Then the Roman soldier pierced his side. In other words, God was pulling out the new Eve out of his sight, out came blood, out came water, the church was born. He was trying to recover Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Because God wants us to live in that vein, in that space. I want us to take 30 seconds, even online. Take 30 seconds and we'll do our Q&A. Lift your hands just for one quick moment. This is our prayer for our ministry. This is why God called me. Is Pastor Miko flawed? every day are you flawed every day but the lord wants to take us back to genesis east of eden we have lived too long but the veil has been rent access has been granted we can go back into those places there's no flaming sword keeping the way to the tree of life the tree of life is made available to us we want to go there I want to use this moment to pronounce the word rhema once again in the atmosphere that God, what you intended for us in the Genesis, let rhema be one of those that experience it through much tribulation, through much trial, through much hardship, through much suffering. Help us to press into the original intent of God. 
Father, would you place an anointing upon this house that moves us into the days of Genesis. An anointing that causes us to see you as the only God. An anointing, God, that unifies men and women under one canopy. An anointing that recovers dominion and makes us the image and the likeness of God. An anointing that empowers us as stewards to dress and to keep the garden of this world. Bless us, Father, to return to Genesis. Give us new beginnings. If any man, any woman be in Christ, new creation, all things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Take us there, God. Take us there in Jesus' name. Take us there in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got 15 minutes. The microphones are available. Is there anything you want us to talk about before we go home? Anything from tonight's lesson that you want to share a thought? It could be even your thought or it could be a question. Let's do our part. There's a question coming over here. If you got a question, just go to the mic now and we can expedite our time. Over here. Uh, good evening, Pastor. I'm not sure if I'm jumping ahead, but if the scripture said the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, was then the man and the woman predestined to fail? Okay, so you're just jumping a little bit ahead, but that's a good question because we're going to do that in chapter 3, which is where they fail. But if they're predestined to fail, then the word not to eat is in vain. So that's also something. When we read about lambs being slain before the foundation of the world, we're now getting into the foreknowledge of God. And in the foreknowledge of God, it presupposes that nothing surprises God and that he's also prepared for all things, including our mistakes. This is something you've got to understand because God is a provider. When the Bible calls God El Roi, the all-seeing God, it literally means that he sees the things you're going to need even before you see them. And he set those things in place so he knew what the man was going to do. It didn't mean that he made the man do it. So there's a difference between foreknowledge and predestination. Predestination means that God has predetermined a thing. For knowledge means that God knows about a thing. And so because he knew that they were going to sin, mess themselves up, he had already made a provision for them. Here's another example where you see foreknowledge. Uh, God says to Abraham, Genesis 22, I need you to take Isaac and go and slaughter him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And so Abraham gets up. He doesn't tell Sarah because Sarah would kill him rather than Isaac. So he leaves early in the morning with the servants and they make their way to the mountain. He sees the mountain in the distance and he says, there's the place. He tells the servants, listen to this. A lot of things are going on that people don't teach that they should. Abraham is walking in such great faith because he says to the servants, you stay here. I and the boy will go yonder and worship and come back. Did you hear what he just said? That's faith. God told him, kill the boy. But Abraham says, I am the boy. We're going to go and worship and we're coming back. So he's going up now. He doesn't see the provision that God has set in place. 
He walks up to the mountain. He begins to put the boy on this on the altar, and Isaac is inquisitive because Isaac says, "Daddy, I, I see the wood, I see the fire, I see the rope and everything, but 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 I don't see the sacrifice." Abraham says, "Son, the Lord will provide Himself a sacrifice." No, you didn't get that. What he's really saying was, that's Abraham prophesying now. Abraham is saying the day is going to come when God himself would be the sacrifice. Right? So he goes, he's about to take the knife and stab the boy. And the minute he's about to do that, God said, this is it now. His faith has maxed out. Don't touch the boy. And immediately God opens his eyes. And what does he see in the thicket? A ram was already sitting there. In other words, God had made the provision. So can I talk to you? What God wants for you is faith. Because what you need has already been provided. You have to know that. That's what foreknowledge, Leroy, that's a beautiful question. There's nothing you need that God hasn't thought about and set in motion. Quick definition of the word provided comes to us from the French. Providier. The word vidier means to see. The word pro means before. When God is going to provide, it means he sees beforehand what you need, even before you see it. Sets it in place. Your faith and your trust in him opens your eyes to what has always been there all the time. It's been there. Hmm? That's why, that's why the worst thing you can do when you don't think that things are working out is to complain. Because when you complain, you're attacking God's provision. That's why when you say he's father, you've got to believe that he has already provided for us. Oh, that is good. I like that question. That is good. Oh, that's good. Lift your hands and say, thank you, Lord. The reason why you should do that is because I know that among us, including myself, we have needs. We have things that we don't know how it's going to work out. There are obligations and bills sometimes that are piling up and we don't know how we're going to, but God has already made a way. He's already provided. That's why don't complain about anything. But in everything, give thanks. This is the will of God. Thank you for that. Question over here. Anything over here? Let's go to the mic so we can go. Check if that is on. Somebody jump up quickly and just check if the mic is on for her. There we go. Pastor, could you explain a little bit more about the the 24-hour cycle um, and how we come about choosing a Sabbath day, be it Saturday or Sunday? Okay. Are you talking about choosing a literal Sabbath day for yourself? No, I'm trying to get a clearer understanding of the literal six or seventh days. Good. Okay, so we won't get a literal Sabbath. Remember this, in Genesis chapter number two, when God rests, we do not want to teach that God rested for 24 hours. We don't want to teach that because God does not live in time as we know it. So that's why I say that what's called that Shabbat of God is actually the rest of completion. It's not the rest of exhaustion. So I don't want you to think that in Genesis chapter number two, God is tired after creation and he needs to take a break. 
No, Genesis chapter 2 says God had finished, so everything was done. As it relates to creation, the Sabbath means that God is not going to lift another finger to do anything creatively. Everything is in creation, and he's going to push it forward. It's going to produce of itself. It's the rest of completion. But when you get to Exodus chapter 20, now God is working with a young nation called Israel. He's brought them out of Egypt, and he's trying to teach them his principles. But they're children. They're in the shadows. They're youth. What he wants to show them is, my goal is to get you back there. But how do I get you back there? I've got to talk to you like a child. So I'm going to give you a 24-hour period to rest physically. That's not my goal or destination. That's my starting point. So I'm going to teach you in the Old Testament my principles from Genesis that there is a period where you can rest. And this is why, as you study the nation of Israel, you see that not only they don't even have just weekly Sabbaths. They actually have also annual Sabbaths, yearly Sabbaths. And when they rest, what they're actually saying is, God, we're trusting you that all things are complete and you're going to provide for us in this season. There's actually something called the year of a Sabbath where every seventh year the land rests and it produces of itself. Those are only teaching methods to get them somewhere. Of course, they couldn't do that and, you know, they broke the Sabbath. When Jesus comes along, we're almost where, to, we're almost where God wants us to be. Christians have to pay attention to these words in Matthew 11. Jesus looks out at the disciples and the people. He says, come unto me, all ye that, what's the word? Labor. That's the word for work and are heavy. And I will give you Shabbat. So I've got to ask myself a question. Is there a difference between the Shabbat of Exodus 20 and the Shabbat that Jesus gives me? Because he says, my yoke is easy, my burdens are light, take my yoke, learn of me. And I argue that yes, the rest that Jesus wants to give us is greater than the rest of the seventh day that Moses introduced. It's actually a rest from the things that really burden us. And the things that really burden us are not our jobs. It is sin that is the greatest burden. And he wants to remove that burden and give the believer a sense of rest. Christians watch, properly taught, do not need a day to rest. Physiologically, anyone would teach you. Principally, that's great. You should take a rest for your body. But really what God is after is the resting of your soul and your spirit. That is a spiritual experience that has watched no starting point and no ending point. So he's invited us back, watch. Jesus invites us back into the rest of God from Genesis 2. He does not invite me, Jesus, to turn off my lamp, turn off my stove Friday at sunset, and turn it back on. That's not what he's inviting me into. He's inviting me into the rest of God. How do I know that? Because he came to fulfill everything that God was teaching in the Old Testament. And so that's why I think Christians should understand that, watch, Sabbath is learning how to walk in the Spirit. Sabbath for Christians is not a day. Now, I know there's a group in the body that's going to kill me for this. Sabbath for the believer is not a day. Sabbath is an experience with God. Pause for a second, Grace. Christians on this side have made Sunday their Sabbath. They're no different than the guy who's made Saturday his Sabbath. 
So we are also guilty of putting Jesus back into a 24-hour cycle. Let me show you how Sabbath really works. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in, watch, on Saturday and in truth, on Sunday and in truth, in spirit and in truth. I don't know if many people believe that God wants us to go back to that rest that he has entered into and experience him on that level. Okay? Physiologically, grace, I think it's also good for you to take a day, whatever day, and just physically rest. I think there's benefits in that. Thank you, Grace. Even Pastor. Um, as you talk about Abraham and Isaac, yes. could that be a type of Christ? Being yes, that- but I don't want to cheat the process. I want to go there when we get there, but it is Abraham, Isaac is a type of Christ. But- the, reason why I, the reason why I said that is, like you said, Abraham presented um, Isaac as a, as a sacrifice. And, you know, he told his, his guys to wait. So as Jesus, when he was in the garden at Gethsemane, he told him to wait because he's going to present himself as the ultimate sacrifice. Right. Yeah. You know what some scholars believe? In that moment, Abraham is actually a type of God. Isaac is a type of Christ. That's powerful. In other words, his faith has elevated him to be a father of nations. So now he's walking as God, as father. Isaac is his only begotten. And that's what Genesis chapter 22 verse 1 says. Take now Isaac, thine only son. So now he's as God, offering his well-beloved son. Then if you believe that, then what the text says after, you should also believe that when the son is given freely, watch, surely blessings, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply you. So if that is a type of God offering his son, then the gospel comes to bless us beyond measure. Okay, we're going to get to Genesis 22 and have fun in those chapters with Abraham, but we're also going to be fair to him, and we're going to show you that God takes people that are very flawed, and if they would continue to walk by faith, even in spite of their flaws, they can actually begin to mirror him in the earth. Because that man was a liar, he was fearful, he had a whole lot of issues, and his boys will have issues. You know, but when God is finished with him, God said, Abraham, who against hope, believed in hope, believed a God that calls those things that be not as though they were. So we'll talk about him when we get there, and there'll be room for people with flaws. Okay? Thanks, Thank you for that. Question over here? In the gap theory... Do me a favor. Just yeah. drop oh, down and just talk right into the mic so we can also hear you. They're listening online as well. Okay. In the gap theory mm-hmm. of creation, it mentions that... Um, Are you a gap theorist? And it's okay, you know. It's, yeah, I, I am a little bit. I, I told you. I told you. <laughs> I'm a framework. There's a gap. And anyone, any literal uh, 24-hour people here? Okay, you know, you know, not, thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, I do lean towards that. And they mentioned that they replenished the earth, right? Um, and then also that he took Adam from there and placed him in Eden. Yes. And then when they had sinned, he took them back and placed them there. Were there people there uh, when he placed them back? 
where he originally took them from. Right. So gap theories, gap theories, remember this, the theory yeah. is this, and that's another, what you just did there is another uh, pointer for gap theories, the word replenish. Mm -hmm. And so they argue that the word replenish means to put back. But in all fairness, the word replenish means to fill up. But they see it as put back. That's how they interpret it. But they believe that there was a race of people on the planet before Adam. So these are called pre-Adamic hominids. They existed before Adam and they were in that flood and all that stuff. They survived. It's, it's a lengthy theory. They also believe that when Cain went out, that's how he was able to find someone. Because there were people on the planet. That's what they believe. I told you what corner I'm in. I believe Cain just took his sister. Very simple. Very, very simple. Come on, let's go. <laughs> took his sister. But that's, that's how they support that view that something happened before and as a result, God is recreating the world. So there are many little indicators that they can use. My, my strong position, it's just a strong position I hold to because I've looked at all of them, the literal, the geological, the gap. I think it's more theological because there's too many things that don't make sense to me otherwise. Like for instance, I, I can't see how you can be using 24-hour cycles without the sun. Because the sun requires, you require the sun. That's what a 24-hour cycle is. It's, is it not? Is it not the revolution of the earth around the... Right, so if the sun doesn't exist, then day one, evening and morning for me, it's just, for me, I think Genesis chapter one is theological. It's God showing me fundamental principles about how he works that will be later developed. And so you can use those principles to say, that God starts a thing and he finishes a thing before he moves on to the next thing. I can use that in my life. I can use that as a principle that governs my life. God uses a framework. He's structured. He'll go in this order. So I can use structure in my life. God forms things. He popul I can use that in my life. So it becomes more theological than it is descriptive of mechanics of creation. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Yeah. So then would the principle be that when he took Adam from where he was and placed him to, into Eden, it's like taking us from the world, um, you, you that could, we are separate from the world, in the world, but separate where Eden was because you, he made that place specific and it was utopia kind of. Exactly. But you could also go like this. You can also say that anything that God creates, there's a place for that in this world. Mm -hmm. So everything, everyone has a particular place. So he took the man, wherever he created him from, and he placed him there. That's called placement. That teaches me now that as a person, I have a place in the world. There's a specific place that God's ordained me. And from that place, I can flourish, expand, and do everything that God's called me to do. So I, that's what I mean by theological. I can pull principles out of there that become applicable to me because they're principles that God uses. The other stuff, like the geological stuff, I have a hard time with it because I've got to prove things that don't exist there. I've got to come up with theories and theories, and it, it becomes harder. Whereas I think, put it this way, you'd all agree with me. Whatever God did in those seven days, yeah. it's beyond our comprehension. Yeah. If, because if you can just call stuff into being by just saying, let it be, that's already gone beyond my pay grade. If you can separate darkness from light by just talking, that's beyond my pay grade to understand the mechanics of it. So rather than be mechanical, I think it's better to be theological. I think you're safer because you can pull things that now become more applicable.
Does that help a little bit? Okay. Anything else before we go? Paul, do you have one quickly? You've got to jump quickly because we're going we're gonna to wrap. Go ahead if you've got a question. No, you need the microphone for those online. Not, not just for us, but they, so they can hear you. Yeah. Pass. I can see why for us you don't need the microphone. <laughs> it's, a, it's a scripture when God says, let there be light, and there was light. What was he referring to? Okay, let's do this. Let's be fair. It's not sunlight, right? It's not sunlight. No. Because that's day four. God creates the greater light to rule the day, lesser light. So whatever that light was, it's not sunlight. My position is that's God introducing himself to the world. So that's the light of the divine being that will enter the world and stay in the world. So I believe that that light exists in the world. In him was light and the light was the life of men. So that let there be light. That's God pushing himself into the creation. So now later on, Paul would say that it's in him we live, we move, and we have our... He's here. The reason why this world continues to exist is because his presence is here. That's the light that I think he was talking about. Okay? Yes. That's what I'm saying. It's him entering the creation and being a part of the creation. So though he's creating the creation, he's also a part of the creation. So you could teach Paul that creation cannot live without him. So does it make sense now when Paul says that it is in him we live, we move and have, he is here. The reason why we continue to live is because his presence is with us. All right? And and to some degree, I think that's the, the idea of the light and the darkness. When the Bible says Jesus comes and the world was in gross darkness, I think it's the absence of that presence of God in a very tangible way, right? That's, that's what I think. Okay. All right, guys, it's 8.37. Thank you so much. Let's stand on our feet, those at home online. Thank you for laboring with us. We labored a little bit tonight. But bigger than everything we discussed, all the theories and positions... And I hope you can see that where we can have positions and explore them, that's fine. Because I'm not going to say, well, you got to hold my position. Because I remember I told you this. Some of these positions do not impact our relationship with him. They cause us to exercise ourselves intellectually and academically. But the things that we need to know, I think those are the things that we should hold to and have all in, in common. If you are blessed tonight and you'd like to give a seat at the end of the service, please do so. The stations are open. The altars are open. But before we go with our hands raised, with the knowledge of purpose, the knowledge of our creation, and to the God who has created all things, Father, we believe tonight and we certainly agree that you have created us, that you have placed us, that you have anointed us, that you have called us to be stewards of creation, managers of the earth, dominion bearers, that we will change and we will affect every life as we manage for your glory. In Jesus' name.